welcome along to Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, we take a deep dive into the Estee Lauder company's climate strategy, exploring how it is going beyond net zero operations and 100% renewable electricity. We catch up with Mighty to see how lockdown has affected the net zero transition for the UK's facilities management and office sectors. And we get the new Energy Saving Trust CEO's thoughts on the Green Homes Grant. Yes, welcome back to the Sustainable Business Cover podcast after what feels like quite a while as we've been running our shorter Net Zero Navigators episodes instead every week this month. I'm Edie's senior reporter, Sarah George, and I'm delighted, first of all, to have you along for today's episode, and second of all, to be joined by Edie's content editor, Matt Mace, even though our meetings have to be virtually for a moment. Um, Matt, it feels like it's been a long time since you've been on the podcast. Yeah, it felt like everything was just starting to get back to normal a little bit, um, because I think the last time I was on the podcast, we um, we actually did it in the office. Uh, We had a little segment where... Um, and that was, you know, lockdown was over. It was we all thought it was a thing of the past, you know, yep. last, I suppose. Lockdown us once. Shame <laughs> on. Was it shame on shame on me? Lockdown us twice. Shame on you or something like that. But um, so, yeah, uh, it then all got chucked back into that lockdown. Um, it was, it's, it's, it's just routine now, isn't it? But it has mean that, that these type of conversations and the podcast haven't been able to dedicate as much time to because, uh, lockdown happened just at the, you know, pretty much as we were gearing up for Net Zero Live and, and this month of content that this podcast falls into. So, um, yeah, it's kind of pushed me to the back burner of the podcast, but glad to be back on. No, and good good to have you back on. And as I mentioned, this is our first longer podcast episode since Net Zero Live earlier this month, um, which we transitioned into a three day virtual format for the first time ever because of COVID-19. Um, Now, during those three days, I spent a lot of time watching and taking notes and transcriptions so that I could put together features and a report that will be hitting your inboxes very soon, all while keeping an eye on the rest of the news. Um, But Matt was hosting a lot of the sessions, so I thought that before we get into our interviews today, it'd be good to recap on some of the highlights and key takeaways from that event, both for the benefit of everyone that came along um, and for those that might have missed out. So, yeah, Matt, what is your Net Zero Live in a nutshell? Net Zero in a nutshell, uh, Net Zero Live, sorry, in a nutshell for me. Um, I've been thinking about it because it was three days, because there was so much. It just felt a bit hard to kind of um, find one thing to, to narrow it down to. And I, I was yeah. sitting in on masterclasses and there was some some great ones, especially the, uh, the Enhancing Your Strategy to Eliminate Plastics, um, WWF and, and PHS. And then um, the engaging consumers on a resource efficiency journey. That was on day three. And it was quite nice just to talk about resource efficiency again. And through the lens of a net zero um, economy, it, it, it felt like um, it had dropped off this year. And that's mm-hmm. maybe because of COVID, maybe because there wasn't so many consumer facing brands, you know. Um, they weren't physically be able to be in front of them with their with their brands and messaging and take back initiatives and and what that so to to hear that that was still very much on the agenda for a lot of corporates was refreshing but um I think for me it was just how energized all the organizations that took part were and the the sustainability and energy professionals that took part were so keen to have these discussions where they can talk with other 
sustainability professionals, NGOs, um, uh, kind of experts uh, that we brought in for, for the viewpoint aspects and the roundtable discussions kind of really, um, really back that up. There was just from a moderator's point of view, which is what I had to do, it was it's always a bit nervous going into a, a roundtable of, of kind of eight or nine people that um, haven't necessarily met and don't have the chance to meet because you're having to do it virtually, that the conversation right. is not really going to flow. You're worried it's going to be a bit of a Q&A led thing. But um, they all just bounced off each other's ideas so well. I kind of just felt like I was part of the audience at the end, which was which was uh which was great. So I, I think um, Net Zero Live in a nutshell for me was just how um, energised everyone was to be having these discussions still. You you kind of stole the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> I was going to come on to say the same thing. But for me, the things that I noted down um, the most was a lot of energy, not just to get going on Net Zero or restart work, um, but also to avoid greenwash and to do best practice. So to go beyond compliance, to go beyond average um so it was really nice to see that that, that coming through um and as as you mentioned it just after months of sitting and typing alone in in your bedroom and in your in your dining table to see hundreds and hundreds of people and pouring in having really lively discussions after what you thought was a time when this might go down the agenda was just a massive relief and so refreshing yeah yeah definitely i think i i think back to the first lockdown and when we were running that survey that we that you worked on and pushed out i was just surprised about how many businesses didn't push this down the down the agenda they didn't put it on the back burner it was really refreshing to see and you know the narratives of a green recovery have been captured by government now with everything that's going on there so um it's uh it's been um i suppose one of the unintended consequences of a of a global pandemic i don't want to, i don't want to use the, the term silver lining but the, the unintended consequence of, global pan, of this global pandemic is it's got everyone thinking about the next pandemic essentially which is on the horizon which is the, the climate crisis so um it's uh yeah you take your you take your your wins where you can get them aren't you of course um and as i said in the introduction to this podcast our first interview for this episode is with a business that has continued to make big announcements about environmental achievements throughout lockdown and beyond, um, the company being the S. Day Lauder Companies. The firm has taken steps like switching to 100% renewable electricity um, in partnership with the Climate Group's RE100 initiative, um, and it's done that by looking at a mix of PPAs, tariffs and on-site generations, and now it's set new targets for its supply chain and other partnerships. Um, so with all of that in mind, our first interview is with the company's senior VP for global corporate citizenship and sustainability, Nancy Mann, who very kindly took a break from her preparations for Thanksgiving to speak with, with us for this, seeing as she's in the US and we recorded this literally late last week. So without further ado, let's play that talk with Nancy in full. Well, hello, Nancy. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast today. How are you? I'm terrific. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to talk with you about uh, all the great work we're doing at SD Lauder. Anytime. And whereabouts are you are you dialing from today? I know I was speaking to some of your colleagues in New York. I am in New York City. We're having a particularly cold day today, but it's brilliantly sunny, so we'll take it. Uh, and we are we are just, a, 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 I don't know, 10 days out or maybe six days out from the U.S. Thanksgiving. So it's, it's a nice time here with family. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for taking um, a few minutes out of what, what I'm sure is a really hectic um, time of year. And because it's your first time on the podcast, I think it'd be great to let everyone at home know a little bit more about 
yourself. So what what's your role in Remit at, at ELC and how, how long have you been doing that for? Sure. Well, I'm lucky enough to be in charge of all of our environmental and social impact work, as well as our what we call our ESG reporting. So I oversee all of our uh, giving, our employing engagement, um, our um, uh, environmental work, including our sustainability practices. And overall, what we're really seeking to do is have positive social and environmental impact. And really, as a company, we, we see that all of our really key stakeholders, our consumers, our employees, uh, governments, they're all really looking for companies to step forward and use their business and their business understanding and their business footprint to really be forces for positive change. And, you know, we are a prestige. In fact, we're the, the biggest prestige beauty company in the world. And we have 29 brands. We sell in over 150 countries. And so what we're really seeking to do is partner in the communities where we live, work and source and to make sure that we are being a, a force for good, essentially. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And we're, we're here today specifically to talk about net zero in light of it being um, net zero November. So it's very timely that the company um, announced that it had reached net zero operational um, emissions earlier this month. So could could you tell us a little bit about how how you got there? Sure. We have historically had a lot of work in climate. We are our chairman, who I'm lucky enough to report to William Water started very early on with the installation of solar panels in our original plant in Melville, Long Island. And basically in about 2016, I was lucky enough to be my remit. I've been at the company for 15 years and 2016, my remit was expanded to include social, basically all of the ESG work. So social, mm -hmm. environmental and, and our reporting work. And we looked around and we thought, what are the needs in the world and what are we uniquely suited to really build from strength on. And we felt that climate was that area. We had a very strong environmental uh, safety team that had been at this for a long time. And we had very strong passion in the company around climate. And we saw it as, as a really important issue. And so in 2016, we set the net zero goal. And then in 2017, we set the RE100 goal. And so over the last, in our last, citizenship and sustainability report, which was issued in the first week in November, we were happy to report that we met both of those goals and we've also just set a science-based target. So we really see now in particular climate as the defining issue of our time and we're really proud to be playing a role. And, and when I say playing a role, we do so with a lot of humility and we really are looking possibly through this podcast to invite more partners and, and, and more businesses to really lean in on this area because particularly post-COVID, we can see there's a huge overlap between climate justice or and, and wealth, candidly, relative to um, health and healthcare outcomes. And so where you have high pollution rates, for instance, you have very bad healthcare outcomes around COVID-19. So I think we're also really seeing that perhaps the lanes of sustainability or social impact that one might see as separate in terms of standing up the programs, they're not actually separate in terms of the impact that they have on the world and on our communities. And what we're working towards now is how does, for instance, climate justice um, interact with uh, the incredible programs we have for women and girls. So climate justice, gender justice, and particularly as a company that has primarily women consumers, we know that 
know our consumers care about this. We certainly know our employees care about it. So we're, we're proud to be there and to play a role. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned their science-based targets and obviously science-based targets require businesses to go further even when they've already met a goal like net zero operations um, and to address scope three, so indirect emissions um, too. So, so aside from the social and justice piece that you've talked about, what what future plans do you have on climate in terms of further reduction and partnering to address those those scope three sources? Well, and, and you, you've outlined that brilliantly. I find sometimes in climate, you can get a little lost in the scopes in terms of how to explain it to people. Um, right. And that's why actually the net zero and the RE100 as, as dual goals were helpful because we could talk about scope two around um, electricity. So in terms of science-based targets, you know, as you know, it's basically a goal based on your absolute energy footprint, which is very, very helpful. And scope three for us is largely around our suppliers and partnering with our suppliers. And it gives us an opportunity to use sustainability and climate um, uh, climate performance as one of the criteria to hire suppliers, essentially. Mm-hmm. It also gives us a better opportunity, I think, to really work with our retail partners. And so what what we have said what we have seen as i mentioned is that people want companies to have concrete actions and this is an opportunity for us through our business footprint to influence and actually create green energy and it was one of the pieces that we really emphasized for instance in our net zero goal and our re100 goal we um invested in a virtual power purchase agreement essentially helped build windmills in oklahoma uh, and we see that really as the end game is how do we as a company help scale green energy and invest in green energy so that we're actually able to um, and, and everyone is able to invest in green energy. And that, that to me is one of the one of the great challenges and opportunities we have as a field is how do we scale green energy uh, across the world? Mm-hmm. Great. And whenever we talk about net zero or carbon neutrality, the question around offsetting always comes up. So it'd be good to hear how that has fitted into the Estee Lauder company's plans in the past um, and what role it could play going forward. Sure. Well, you know, offsets in terms of the the, our goals, we did invest in uh, forest offsets in Massachusetts. So our goal has been to the extent that we invest in offsets that it again, help preserve or build green energy. And we're very interested in the role of forestry and investing in forests. And it is, it has been difficult so far to invest in forests directly. So we felt that the offsets were the way to go in that, that, that instance. Generally, we again are trying to have a, a varied portfolio. So in the United States, we had wind, we had solar, and we had the forest offsets. Uh, and as we look forward to local solutions, I think the good I, the good news is that although there are offsets in every country, including, for instance, China, there is a, is a particularly post Paris Climate Accord, and as countries and cities send, set their own goals, that there is opportunities to perhaps include offsets in a portfolio, but not overly depend on them. Mm-hmm. For sure, and and you mentioned there that forest project is based in in the US was that deliberately um, chosen to be sort of in the same same place as as the company's HQ yes absolutely uh, and just to give a shout out to the actual project it's the Massachusetts tri for tri-city forest project 
and it protects about 6,500 acres of public forest land. We would love to encourage other folks to invest in that. Yes, as, as you know, for climate solutions, you really need to invest locally. We, as you might guess, as a, as a business, have most of our business in cities. Uh, not surprisingly, green forest, I mean, green energy solutions are primarily located in rural areas because of the cost of real estate. But we do work within the country footprint. Uh, and where we can, obviously, create local jobs and support local economies in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Great. And I think we've taken a, a very in-depth look at what, what the company is doing. But coming back to your yourself and your career, we're asking everyone who comes on our podcast um, this month to talk a little bit about how the net zero movement has changed sort of the role of a professional such as yourself. And you, you spoke a bit how a bit there about um, how COVID-19 has made people realise the interconnectedness, I would guess, of social and environmental sustainability. But if we look back to this time last year, it was all about net zero legislation and about climate protests and school strikes for for future. So how has your role in Remit changed over the past two two years or so, would, would you say? Well, it's a terrific question. And Generally, I would say in terms of the science-based targets or RE100 net zero is that they are very useful, particularly in a business setting, because they're goals and they're concrete goals and they are goalposts along the way. I think to a great extent, you know, green, greening our planet and, and building a better climate is, is a journey that will go on for many, many years. And so having those goalposts and those deliverables are very helpful. And candidly, having company in the journey uh, and recognition. This is climate is a, is the job of pretty much everybody at our company. We feel very very passionate about it. Uh, and yet at the end of the day, everybody in procurement, everybody in legal, everybody has day jobs. You know, we have a, a small, really terrific sustainability team, um, and it, it allows local and regional pride. And it also it really empowers our employees to be agents of change. In terms of how this has changed me as a person. I grew up, it's funny, I was on a, uh, did a London Climate Week panel yesterday with the, my peer at Net-A-Porte, and she was saying she was an American literature major, <laughs> and I was an American history major. So I think the one thing I would like to emphasize is that um, sustainability as a field, climate as a field, we need a, a larger army of do-gooders. Uh, we need cross-functional thinking. We need new energy. We need people of different generations. I would say from different countries of different ethnicities and backgrounds, and there's plenty of good work to do. So I would encourage all of your listeners to get involved. Both change starts at home in their own lives, and also change starts at, at home in terms of their companies. And to be a sustainability and climate advocate within your, your within your four walls. To me, what has changed over the last two years and what has been very rewarding is the intersection. I think the the starkness and the essential um, and the inequity, the essential nature, and I would say the inequities of COVID-19 coming off of Greta and the incredible climate movement and then moving into the tragic death of George Floyd made very clear that all of these issues are interconnected and that to have real solutions, we as citizens, as employees, um, as family members, and, and as, as hopefully voters, need to be agents of change and look at that all these these 
opportunities in all of their intricacy. So, um, you know, one of the things, for instance, we just decided there's a program in Southeast Asia around plastics, and we've been funding, we're funding a program where we're basically um, supporting waste pickers in Southeast Asia. So plastics for issue is a very big issue. It's really a a reduction of plastic is certainly a mega trend of our time, um, particularly coming off of the great work of, of, of Greta and the climate movement. And yet at the same time, that obviously impacts women, impoverished women. And if we just tried to just eliminate the plastic, you would not pay attention to the need for local industry. And so it has given us an opportunity, I think, to use our inter, our ES and RG thinking, really, and mm-hmm. to partner in what I would say sector agnostic ways. And it's very clear if you do the math, the societal math, as well as the, I would say, the financial math that no one sector, and and I, previous to this job, worked in NGOs, God's Love We Deliver here in New York City, and prior to that, I worked at George Soros' foundation. And it's very clear that the NGO sector, private foundation, the governments can't do this alone. And so the, I would say, the climate activism and the social activism and the racial activism of our consumers, of our employees and investors really are moving companies in such an exciting way. This is a real moment in time. And I do feel that we will look back on this moment and say, what did we make of it? And and exciting and and a little um, daunting, depending upon the day. But we have a lot of folks on the field who are really rowing in the same direction. So it's a very exciting moment. We need to get concrete about it. We need to set goals as we've done. And then we need to deploy with excellence and efficiency. Fantastic. Well, Nancy, I can't think of a better note to end this conversation on. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you once again to Nancy there for her time and her insight and her expertise. Um, And this is normally the part of the podcast where if it was a shorter episode, I'd go into the news in brief. But I'm going to find a way to shoehorn it in here now anyway. Um, We've had a lot of net zero stories this month, and it's really been my job to round them up for these episodes. Um, so, so for this, I wanted to get your views, Matt, on what announcements have caught your eye during our Net Zero November month of content. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when, when you when you said across brief, I think the exact words were uh, which business announcement on emissions uh, stood out for this month and why. I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and not do a business. I, I've got a business one which I will touch on, but for me, it's the it's the you can't touch on Net Zero November and, and November in general, and not touch on the U.S. election highly contentious still depending on which side of the fence you sit going on but um it for all you know for all the um i suppose embarrassment that, that was surrounding such a global powerhouse like the us that how that election went down was, was quite embarrassing but for all intents and purposes the the us is is essentially going to come back into the uh paris agreement once biden is, is officially elected so i mean uh next year um and he's already kind of made his play to set a net zero target as part of a new green deal that's that's just huge for for cop 26 it's huge for this glasgow agreement whatever we want to call it coming up next year having them and china both at the table is is uh is massive so i, I wanted to touch on that but um if i wanted to do a, a business one i haven't been as close to the ground as you but um one that i think was a nice commitment was uh the energy firm sse their publication of their just transition plan which um lays out how they're going to engage with workers and communities that they operate in as part of their 
and the UK's journey towards net zero is essentially 20 principles that the company is going to follow from moving from, you know, prioritizing green jobs, uh, building and operating new green assets to looking after people in current high carbon jobs and supporting communities. I think it's um, it's one of the things that's really going to um, disrupt the 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 low carbon transition is is this concept of just and how it's delivered you know the the uk has got a pretty terrible track record when it comes to social mobility as it stands uh, i think the coronavirus has proved that a a disruption that doesn't target people will still affect people um disproportionately based on based on their current circumstances and the the transition to a net zero economy may very well um, impact poorer communities. It will certainly impact people operating in high carbon jobs already. So to see a, a business set out a just transition plan when there's been so much talk about, you know, green, green New Deals, which are meant to incorporate just transition, was was good to see amongst what has been a plethora of net zero targets. Mm. In a way, I think that the SSE one kind of straddles the line between business and policy in that they are one of the corporate sponsors of COP26 and that they are going to have to work with government and local authorities to deliver some of those points that you mentioned. I think there's 20 of them altogether. So it's quite a weighty, weighty plan. But anyway, I was trying to use this discussion to segue into the fact that obviously policy is so crucial to the net zero transition in in the first instance. Um, And we've seen this from the reaction to the announcement of things like the 10 point plan earlier this month and the spending review which is coming up later this week. Um, so with the policy piece in mind, we dialed the Energy Saving Trust's new CEO, Mike Thornton. Um, he stepped into this role earlier this year and he is a wealth of knowledge on the role of energy policy, um, both in the transition to the to net zero and in the green recovery movement. Um, so in this interview, we covered topics like how the pandemic has changed approaches to energy mo- management, at home and in the workplace and whether the Green Homes grant is really enough. So without further ado, let's get cracking with that interview with Mike. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule to hop on the podcast today. My pleasure. How are you doing? I'm doing fine and working away as like as you are, as most people are, with any luck. Every day blends into one another, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I'm lucky enough to have a very varied job, so, mm-hmm. um, but there is a certain amount of blending that goes on after a few hours, yes. Mm-hmm. For for sure, and it's a pleasure to have have you um, on, and I think that it's the first time we've had you on the podcast in your current role as CEO um, at the Trust, so it'd be great to get a bit of an overview of how you, how you came to be there and what you're focusing on at the moment. Okay, well, um, I've been at uh, Energy Saving Trust for a long time now. Um, I've been there since 2002, um, but I've only, I'm a relatively new in the chief executive position, so mm-hmm. I've only been there since April, um, just in time for lockdown. How, how lucky am I? But on the other hand, you know, you have to play what, what's in front of you, and I am very much enjoying the job. In terms of how I got here, um, so a very long time ago, I used to be... Um, after university, I worked in computing for seven years. Uh, it was at one time, I worked for Roundtree, the 
confectioner's um, IT department, and it was at one stage my proudest boast that I was the first person in Yorkshire with a colour PC, um, <laughs> which I guess just shows how old I am. Um, but I've, I did that for a long time, and seven or eight years, and it was intellectually interesting, but I'd always been an environmentalist at heart, and I came to realise that, you know, although I enjoyed the intellectual challenge, it wasn't really the value that I was generating wasn't the most meaningful value for me, um, much as I like chocolate. So I switched and I went to work for Friends of the Earth Scotland. And that's how I came to um, move to Scotland, where I'm speaking to you from now, because that's where I'm still based in Dunbar on, on the east coast of Scotland. And I worked for Friends of the Earth for um, three or four years. And then I was headhunted to run a um, regional NGO working in sustainable energy, recycling and sustainable transport, which um, was then known as LEAP for Lothian and Edinburgh Environmental Partnership. That's still going. Um, it's um, now, it's very successful under the name ChangeWorks. But after, um, so I was kind of its first um, chief exec and I, it was, I think there were two other employees when I joined and when I left there were 50. Um, and on the basis of that, I was appointed to run the Scottish team for the Energy Saving Trust. And then I um, was promoted to become eventually director of their operations, responsible for all their delivery, and then eventually to the chief executive position. So, as I say, I'm, I'm quite a, I'm not a lifer with Energy Saving Trust, but I'm, I'm one of their longer serving staff members. Mm -hmm. of, of course. So I think you'd be well placed to look at the trends in, in how the business approach to energy saving has changed recently. And at the moment, obviously, lockdown has probably had a really big impact in in this field we we have an energy leaders club um when we speak to members and we spoke to them last time in person before lockdown we have a lot of talk about how how, how do we make energy glamorous and why is this such low-hanging fruit but a lot of businesses aren't taking it seriously so what have been the the trends and changes in this discussion amid the sort of shift to remote working <clears throat> okay well before we get to remote working, which is a whole, whole topic for, for all of us by itself, but I think it's always been a bit of a mystery to me why businesses don't want to pick that low-hanging fruit. And as you say, why, you know, in terms of their investment profile, high ROI investments in energy efficiency, which is a pretty good de definition of low-hanging fruit, why they, did, why they weren't always harvested straight away. But I think what has now changed and will we'll end that mystery is that we've got net zero now. And I think there's always been a sense, um, one can always feel that one can dodge the bullet. And even in an 80% target, you might think, well, okay, but I don't have to do that because there's 20% left. Maybe I'll be in that 20%. It's not imperative. Now, um, I don't think it matters whether saving carbon and its main, hand, uh, its main contributor, um, energy efficiency, whether that's glamorous or not because every the country's on a net zero pathway and every business that wants to have social license to operate and to operate efficiently on a, in, a path, in a country that's on a net zero pathway is going to have a pathway to net zero of its own. And that means it's going to pluck those low hanging fruit and then it's going to do the harder things afterwards, but it's definitely going to go for those first. So I think that's that's it's more of a psychological and cultural transition, but I think it is very powerful. Right, and, and that you think is longer reaching than than lockdown changes well lockdown changes uh you know there's a lot of people saying it's a cliche almost now instant cliche but you know covid is here and it's it's 
a massive focus, but the climate emergency hasn't gone away, net zero hasn't gone away. You know, those are those are legal commitments. The government is committed to them um, and policy will drive them. So from a business environment point of view, you know, COVID is hopefully temporary and net zero is permanent. Mm -hmm. And and you said you said there about how lockdown and remote working and things like changing business hours and loads and rotors is a separate um, discussion um, on its own. And one of the big things we've seen about this is talking about accounting for energy use and related um, emissions. So what has what has the trust been doing around this particular issue? Well, I, we've got a view on that, which is that. Um, you know, when you're looking, I mean, if you're going to have a pathway to net zero, then you have to look at all your um, carbon impacts. And if people are in the office, that's relatively easy. And if they're working at home, it's more difficult. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it, because basically some of the carbon that those people are um, generating with their, in their home is being done on your dollar as a business and therefore it's part of your carbon footprint. So we're of the camp that says, therefore, you have to find a way to measure that and incorporate it into your carbon footprint and therefore into your net zero planning. Um, we acknowledge, I think many people acknowledge that, that as I said, it is, a, it is more difficult and you've got to do it in a standardised way so that you can have, you know, clear clear sight for planning and you can do accurate benchmarking and so on. But in principle, I think it's quite clear. Mm -hmm. And obviously, one of the main things that has changed as a result of lockdown is policy supports. New announcements seem to be being made um, left, right and centre and advice seems to be changing on a bi-weekly um, basis. So I couldn't really get you on the podcast without discussing some of these big announcements that have happened um, in in recent weeks. And in terms of energy efficiency, the biggest one for interest from the public is probably the Green Homes Grant and related public sector decarbonisation scheme. So what was the trust reaction to, to these and how would you like to see the government proceed go, going forward? I was very encouraged by the um, Green Homes Grant Scheme because it represents the first significant investment in energy efficiency and fabric-based and heating system-based energy efficiency in England for some time. If you know, if you leave out the um, the eco funding, which has been with us for a long time, but as a government program, it's the, it's the it's a big new thing on the landscape, mm -hmm. and I think that's great, and it's a good scheme, um, and we support it. And we've done, um, I mean, the great thing of it from us, from our point of view, is that Energy Saving Trust is in the business of telling consumers what they can do. And the Green Homes Grant Scheme means that householders in England can do something. So it's a great it's a great proposition and we're, we're um, pushing it hard, as, as many other people are. I think the another good thing about it in terms of signals is that um, it sends a clear signal in terms of the heating measures that it um, supports, which are basically renewables gas boilers are on their way out and I think that's a very important signal for the government to send particularly in a spending program as opposed to if you like a pure policy announcement because that is something that householders are going to have to get their heads around and get behind over the next few years and that's a good start. So those are you know there are many pluses there I think a couple of um, they're not minuses as such they're kind of grey lights shall I put it that way one is the supply chain impact so what we're already finding is because because the scheme wants to spend, you know, wants to do 600,000 homes in less than a full financial year, it wants to spend £2 billion in less than a full financial year, then what that's exposing is that the supply chain is not up to that level of 
business. And I'm sure um, all your listeners will have seen things like um, recent reports about how difficult it is to get someone to come and do a job under the um, GHG because they've already filled their order books for, for the foreseeable future. So what that says to us is, it, I mean, it is a problem of success, if you like, or can be viewed that way. But what it says is that the supply chain needs to be built up. And how does the supply chain to be built up? By not having stop-start. So the the GHG has to be the start of a long-term investment by the government in energy efficiency and sustainable heating measures in England. And then the supply chain will invest and then this bottleneck will disappear. But if they have you know, one scheme and then a gap and then another, will always be um, constrained by the supply chain and that will be a problem. Right. I'm presuming there's also a social as- aspect to that with, with jobs because it's not just about jobs creation is it's about decent work yeah. well it, it, i mean it's a very good the, the scheme is a very good thing for the for the green recovery which you know obviously energy saving trust is very interested in that i'm sure many of your listeners are very interested in that i mean the great thing about energy efficiency schemes from a green recovery point of view is that they do create as you were saying they do create jobs across the whole country because it's not a not a centralized plant there are firms offering energy efficiency services and low carbon heating installations in all areas and they all get floated up by the rising tide of programs like this um, and the other good thing about energy efficiency particularly as a as a green recovery measure is of course it's so shovel ready you don't even need a shovel you know you don't have to you don't have to wait two years till you've assembled a big project and can break ground um it's mostly a matter of training and so on that it's it's not equipment it's people and skills and this takes me back to the point that i was making earlier that for people to be trained for investment in in um, improving the skills and the number of people who can work in this area you need continuity and that that's what the government it's not just money that the government needs to offer though that's absolutely vital it's continuity as well and they're both well within its reach mm-hmm. and you talk there about how some of the policy packages that have been announced so far they they as well as providing funding provide signals and we're hoping that some of these signals are going to be cemented into law in the coming months the pipeline of environmental legislation that's due back on the table soon is is a mile mm-hmm. is about a mile long yeah um, but and that's a good thing because obviously we're dealing with a, a big problem so you need a, a lot of different um, aspects of the solution mm-hmm. of course but i wanted to ask whether you'd heard any updates um from this field i'm presuming that the most relevant strategy for for the trusts will be the heat and building strategy, which I understand have now been been merged. Yes, well, that's our understanding, too. And I think I think that makes perfect sense because you need to, you know, they're two halves of the same coin. I think we don't, you know, I wouldn't like to claim any um, special insight into um, government drafts of those things. But there are a number of things that we're very we're very keen to see in them, one of which is that um, all um, domestic buildings need to be of um, EPC efficiency C by 2030, because you can't have you can't have a, any sort of heat strategy merged with buildings or not. If the heat you generate is leaking out through the walls, you you know right. it's an inherently wasteful proposition, as I'm sure many people know better than me. So we want to see that. Um, we also um, want to see um, accompanying communications. I mean, I think the thing that Policy and and people, the mix, the thing that um, links them together is communication. So, you know, where Energy Saving Trust works is in um, a lot of our expertise is in communicating with householders 
and we you know interact with hundreds of thousands of householders a year if those people don't know what expectation is of how their the pathway their home will take you know if you think of the lifetime of of a property um it changes over time it gets built it might be heated one way then it might be heated another then someone puts a conservatory on then someone insulates the roof and so on maybe someone fits the kitchen or a wet room they're all if people don't understand what what's going to happen to their home what its pathway is going to be as a result of um the commitment to net zero then unfamiliarity is likely to breed resistance you know if you if suddenly the government rocks up and says you know what you're not going to have a gas boiler in five years time or whatever and they, and and people that's a policy announcement but nobody gets it out there then suddenly they're going to find themselves not exactly caught out but surprised and that that's just not going to be good for the for the pathway so what we're very keen is that the government has to do some communications and we're thinking you know things like the digital switchover or something where it's in effect saying look this isn't a bad thing but it is a change and it's very important that it, you know it plugs both those points because if we don't want to get people to get the idea that the things that they need to do are are bad for their homes or bad for their bills but we do need people to to understand that change is coming because otherwise it kind of as i say it tends to surprise them and that tends not to produce a, a positive reaction mm. we also think that there needs to be a lot more um the government needs to incorporate um, possibly through the bill that you mentioned um or through other mechanisms but we do think that there is a need for independent trusted advice to householders okay um obviously you know we've got an interest in that in the sense that that's one of the things that energy saving trust does but i think the the point of principle here is that if you're spending a couple of billion through the green homes grant scheme most of which is going to householders or tenants and you're we're saying and i hope the government is going to agree because it's not just us saying it that that level of investment needs to be kept going for the purposes of certainty and continuity and building up the supply chain then you know you might be looking i think the conservative party manifesto commitments in this area added up to about 9 billion pounds so you're going to spend 9 billion pounds a lot of which is going to go to householders and yet yet there's no advice to householders about how to access that there's no advice to them that outside the the narrow scheme advice about how to proceed and we think that um some form of independent trusted advice service would actually be a very strong enabler it would get people interested in the scheme it would get them to understand it better and i think it would raise access levels so that's one of the things that we're quite keen to see in as part of these policy initiatives mm-hmm. and on on that advice piece and that comms piece what about what about engaging for for businesses or or helping businesses get on the on the same track well it, i guess it's the same point yes there should be that sort of that sort of level of advice i mean i guess we're less b2b and more um b2c in in the advice work that we do so um we're not we don't have such definitive proposals about how that should be done but i think we can certainly agree that it should be done thank you once again to mike for his time there and i don't know about you matt but i've got my fingers crossed that we're going to get a lot of big policy announcements for for christmas i know we got news this week that the national infrastructure is coming actually this week along with the spending review but i'm i'm i have got the heat and building strategy and the transport strategy and a finalized environment bill on 
on my Christmas wish list. <laughs> yeah, you can almost do uh, enough for an advent calendar, can't you? Every day in December, <laughs> we just tick off. Uh, we just tick off one would be would be a nice way to end the year. I mean, I mean, in fairness, I think with, with everything that's gone on this year and how how just bizarre and and kind of depressing it, it's been, the last month has been a real uh, injection, morale injection almost for me, in terms of. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll, um, I'll highlight my, I suppose, my political lean, but the, the US result for me was was much needed. Um, the early reports of a vaccine, you know, um, in the US and now here with the Oxford City trials as well. It, it all sounds really, really promising. Um, and now the 10 point plan from the government is um, it's, it's still not, as with most government announcements, it's still not quite enough for what we need to, to really chart a course on net zero. But it's... Um, it definitely signals the, the direction of travel. So yeah, this this last month has been um, great for uh, just a bit of optimism around this subject, and hopefully December just continues on that uh, that trajectory. Really, mm-hmm. for sure. If only we could get such such concrete announcements around Brexit, I think we could round off the year. Yeah, I think I think the B words, the the one thing that everyone's just kind of pushed to the back of their mind and gone, we'll we'll deal with that issue once we've dealt with uh, with the the current situation. But yeah, it's gonna um it's gonna I have a horrible feeling it's going to sting. Yeah, for sure. I I know that everyone's been in that oh a little bit later mindset, but the fact is that the 31st of December is now very soon. Yeah. Um. Just and just like this year, this this episode of the podcast has just flown by. Um. So we really need to get into our last interview really quickly because I do have another really important exclusive discussion. Um, to bring you, and that is with Mighty's Managing Director for Plan Zero and Energy Services, Pradyuma Pandit. Um, Mighty was one of the first businesses to appear on our Net Zero Business podcast earlier this year. In the days that we were allowed to go up to London, I ventured out to the Shard to go and meet Simon King, who is the company's Director of Sustainability, Social Value and Fleets, to talk about its plans to become Net Zero by 2025. As you can imagine, since I went to go and speak with Simon, the world has changed dramatically. Um, and I'm sure everyone that's listening can imagine how different things will be for facilities management companies with lockdown advice on working from home. So I thought that this interview would be a, a timely update on all of that and also on how some of Mighty's biggest clients are adapting decarbonisation approaches in the COVID-19 crisis. So without further ado, let's play that interview in full. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. How are you? I'm very well. And it's a Friday, so even better looking forward to the weekend. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming along and taking time. Um, yeah, as you say, on a on a Friday. And I can see that you're working from home, home today. Is that right? Yes, we've uh, been fortunate to uh, be going in for a few days for important collaboration meetings but uh, yes we are still mostly working from home where we can mm-hmm. are you based in london yourself yes on uh, in our shard office that's right mm-hmm. i definitely miss london so much it's been so long <laughs> it feels like um but anyway we're not here to talk about about that we're here to talk about um plan zero and energy services obviously um and mighty's been a really familiar name to ed readers in recent months so you guys have had so many announcements out over the past few weeks and months but also we had the pleasure of having simon king who is sustainability director on our podcast 
um, earlier this year. So it'd be great to hear how you as MD for Plan Zero and Energies um, work with with Simon's team to to deliver that plan. Yeah, so I think um, for those of who may not have heard of Mighty, just to recap, we are the UK's leading FM company and we have uh, 47,500 people across the UK. Um, we uh, offer a range of services that include cleaning, landscapes, security, engineering, and of course, sustainability and energy is a, is a key part. Uh, essentially, we do everything that helps our customers uh, keep their sites and businesses running. And some of our clients are the biggest brands in the country, covering everything from hospitals, banks, uh, retail, transport infrastructure, critical government assets even. I joined the business five months ago to look after our sustainability and energy services. And our approach in that area is around uh, three key things. We believe firstly that big carbon savings, energy savings shouldn't cost the earth. Secondly, um, we take a 360 degree approach. We plan it, uh, we do it, and then we actually prove it. Uh, and finally, we uh, never say we are done. We're always in beta, always looking for the next way to reduce carbon. So I work very closely with Simon, who focuses on walking the walk for MIT. So actually implementing activities that take us to our net zero ambition. Um, my role is to take that expertise that we have and collaborate with our clients to help them achieve their net zero ambitions. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd imagine that that's a super important part of the plan. I'm imagining that collectively the, the clients that you work with just have such a bigger environmental footprint than, than yourselves. Absolutely. So I think um, we that's why we look at our activities in three areas. The first area is to do it, so do it ourselves. So we took an ambitious pledge, one of the FM industry's leading pledges. We have a comprehensive set of activities and program that Simon leads to get us there. Secondly, we believe in uh, lead, leading, sharing our experience, getting inspired, inspiring other businesses to follow uh, a path to net zero, go further, faster. And finally, uh, delivering the ambitions for our clients and working with them to help them, support them, and collaborate on their sustainability goals. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the one uh, one other thing I'd just say is that Plan Zero also allows us to bring all the one mighty capabilities across multiple discipline areas, uh, be it waste, landscapes, engineering, energy procurement, green procurement, uh, sustainability consulting, all the uh, aspects we bring together to, to address the, those goals for our clients. And I say that I spoke to Simon recently, but it seems like the whole world has changed since, since I did. So I came up to the Shard to see him and now I haven't been to London for months and months and on end. So it would be good to get an update on the sort of impact that COVID has had, um, both on, as you say, the internal side of this, on the doing and the walking the talk and, and on the external work as well. 
No, I can confirm Simon has been working really hard. So I wouldn't deny that uh, the first few weeks of lockdown, you know, every company, including Mighty, was uh, we were really focused on protecting our employees, uh, our customers, keeping them safe. I think we are particularly proud that uh, and humbled actually that uh, you know 37,000 of Mighty employees, colleagues, they work on the front line through the pandemic and through those lockdown difficult times. Um, but uh, once we were all working safely in our homes, for those of us who were not on the front lines, we definitely didn't stop. So during the time, uh, the team have created the working group. Uh, we have uh, basically a very clear um, program of works. We have a leader for that program. And each of the areas have their sub team leaders. They have established a monthly operating review process. The we have a sustainable a, a social value and, and responsible uh, business committee, which is led co-chair, which is chaired by a non-executive director on our board, Baroness Kuti. The team actually report out every quarter the progress, targets, and activities to this board. So it's uh, really at all levels of the organization, there is a lot of structure and uh, oversight along with the enthusiasm to, to achieve these targets. So, and uh, really what that has reflected in is during the last uh, few months, uh, we really achieved our target to get to 20% of our fleet on EVs. We got there three months earlier uh, as I said, we have established the working groups and uh, we have done a lot of work on baselining our operations with respect to the buildings and waste. So some of our energy managers have been visiting the sites because you can get to those uh, front lines. And uh, for our clients also, we have uh, launched a few new services uh, during the time, during this uh, last few months. So we launched our zero cost, zero carbon reduction service program that helps re customers, our customers reduce carbon at zero cost. Uh, we launched our Plan Zero Urban Landscape Service, which is our net zero landscaping service for cities, which uses electric vans, no chemicals, no single use plastics, solar powered landscaping equipment within the car. We put some nice solar panels on the rooftop which actually charge the equipment within the van so it's a really green landscaping service pardon the pun um, and of course um, as a leading transformation of electric fleet in the company in the country uh, we have a very good end-to-end -end offering launched for ev fleet transition service so we are able to share our experience and take our customers through the entire journey of uh, moving from uh, uh, to to an electric fleet. So mm -hmm. lots of activities in the last uh, few months, I would say, since you've met Simon. Mm. So does does that mean that there's been a change in approach with the businesses that you you work with? Are you seeing more of a demand for net zero? And if so, is that because of of lockdown? Do you think? I, I, of course, like us, you know, our clients also, after the initial pause, 
everybody is uh, straight back up again. You know, prior to the pandemic hitting us all, uh, there was a lot of excitement, momentum building around the COP, which was going to be this year. Mm-hmm. And so, so the there was a pause, but people are back at it again. I think uh, realistically, uh, there's a lot of financial, economic uncertainty, um, and teams are finding that their budgets are squeezed, delayed activities. I wouldn't say no, but but actually that what we are finding is that when we talk about innovative ways to uh, achieve zero carbon at zero cost, for example, uh, we recently shared our experience with Vodafone together. For them, we've actually saved 100 gigawatt hour of energy over the last three years and 25,000 tons of carbon while uh, reducing uh, after net costs, they still made 10 million uh, over that three year period. Clearly, uh, it doesn't have to cost the earth. And it's a mix of big and small projects. So we've done about 3000 plus interventions. Uh, We have done uh projects which uh change out equipment but also very simple things like improving uh the flow of air in in by changing the tiles in a timely manner on a data center and allowing the air to flow in the right uh direction so customers are telling us that they like this uh, they like the fact that uh it needn't be cost and they're asking us but also they want to that's where the prove it part comes you know they want to know that there's an assurance of what they presented to their management will actually happen so back to Vodafone for example we actually worked uh, to for every intervention we do we record it and there is a strict audit trail that is independently verified by a third party Eves different uh, very interestingly, just uh, we heard yesterday from a charitable firm that has uh, two buildings and as part of their estate, and they called us to help them with uh, establishing some targets and a path to get to the target over the next five years. And on the other hand, we are working with a global brand, which is has a nationally huge estate, and they want to really aggressively uh, reduce carbon through a big program, multi-year, multi-million. So from from our side of things, we're definitely seeing a lot of more people waking up to the fact that sustainability doesn't mean additional cost uh, um, and it can mean more profitability and more cost savings. Um, but we're also seeing a lot of people figuring out exactly what to do with emissions that you think would just always happen from sources like big offices Um, or transport, but there's just less of that um, now. So what advice would you give to people looking to sort of take the emissions reductions that they've seen because of lockdown um, and essentially stop them, stop them from coming back? (laughs) I think it's, uh, you know, this is our opportunity as professionals, as you rightly said, operating sustainably firstly makes a lot of business sense. I think we professionals in the sustainability and energy space should now not let this opportunity uh, miss this opportunity. We need to think bold and make big business cases that comprehensively transform our company operations. 
and take those business cases to boards which increasingly understand the power of you know there is the not only the moral imperative but it makes good business sense as you said the second thing i feel is we all need to have that 360 degree collaborative view you know i'm amazed in in producing those results we work with our engineering team we work with vodafone's client side teams multiple disciplines finance procurement everybody coming together uh behind a big bold objective so let's not stay in our silos and let's collaborate um and finally you no know, this is uh, coming back to the always in beta point there are so many innovations technologies new ways of doing things one of the things for example uh, where we have connected systems to uh, to in our clients uh, operations we are able to during the pandemic turn things on and off remotely uh, we can bring floors back up instead of the whole building all of this is operating sustainability uh, sustainably by uh, enabled by technology enabled by that remote connectivity enabled by artificial intelligence so i think this is our time to keep investing in that technology and and being always in beta and again thanks once more to pradyumna for his time and for his insight um i'm so glad that we've had time to run this full length episode alongside the four net zero navigators episodes we have run this month which you can find on our site if you need to catch up um but for this particular episode we're just about out of time so i want to thank all of our speakers once more and thank you for tuning in if your organization has a net zero story or any other big sustainability announcements that you think me and matt might find interesting please drop us a line at newsdesk@fav-house.com um and we will be back with another episode of the sustainable business covered podcast next month um for a christmas special christmas crazy Probably I know. Happens this year. I know. I'm. I am ready to buy my Christmas Colin the caterpillar though. <laughs> I didn't know they're doing a Christmas one. There's a special one just for this year, just to save 2020. I've got. I've got like a massive lint advent calendar right next to me, and the just the the restraint I'm showing to not open it is is impressive for <laughs> my standards anyway. For me, it's the fact that I've already got a cheese advent calendar, but that it has to stay in the fridge. So it's slightly less tempting. Yeah, very true. Anyway, we digress until we come back with our advent calendars and our festive cakes. Um you can subscribe to and follow the ED podcast portfolio on our SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. And for more net zero news, the website and newsletter will be your go-to. But until the next episode, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>